0: Welcome to the Life Over Coffee podcast, conversations for transformation. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Life Over Coffee. Are you ready to do a little Life Over Coffee? I want to bring my friend Mabel out here. She's a 42-year-old lady, and she is stuck. Uh, She came from a legalistic religious environment, had great affection for God, but something subtle began to happen throughout her young life that formed a shaping influence that incarcerated her. She called it her minimal security prison and then God imposed himself in her life as a 40-something year old and began to extract her from her minimum minimum security prison. And I want to talk about how that process happened because it applies to all of us. We can suddenly get ourselves into traps that are imperceptible, and then God has to use extraordinary means to uh, crack open the, the minimum security prison that we are in and to release us so That we can truly be free. Our ministry is bringing hope and help for you and others. Uh, Our tagline is important because we do want to accomplish those two things. We want to give you hope uh, through the gospel of Jesus Christ, but we want it to be practical as well, not just cliches, but we want to get into the nitty-gritty of our lives as we're going to examine Mabel here in just a few moments. And so we want to provide hope and help For you and for others. Now, those two things are significant as well. Uh, We want to be able to equip people in discipleship, bringing the practical life of Christ into our life, uh, but that is not the end goal. We want to help equip you so that you can go out and help others. And so we want to bring hope and help for you and for others by creating resources that are, they, they create conversations for transformation. And so I trust that you will take what I'm presenting here and and the zillion other resources on our website. They're free to you. I want you to take them and I want you to have conversations that lead to transformation. And if we can help you, we're just a simple click away. Just get in touch with us. You can go on the footer of our website and click Get in Touch. If you happen to be a supporting member of our ministry, we want many more of you. And so pray that. That many more will come and underwrite this ministry so that we can continue to give our resources away but if you are a supporter you can go right to our private forums and you can talk to us right there all right so let me bring mabel out i want to give you a little historical background of what has happened in her life and you'll be able to see the formation of her shaping influences you'll see how it got her into trouble And then I just want to bring a wild perspective to you, but it is a biblically accurate one, I assure you. In fact, I titled this this way, and that will give you a clue as to my wild perspective. Here's the title. How do you think about a God who permits sin in your life? Now, let me begin this way. How many ways does the Lord have available for himself to help you and me mature into Christ-likeness. And so as you think about all the means of grace that God has uh, to use to help us to grow in Christ-likeness, what are some of those means of grace? I think most people would say the Bible, that would be true. Prayer is an excellent means of grace that transforms us. And so the Bible is talking to us. Prayer is us talking to God. A third means of grace would be the church, of course. We want to embed ourselves in a body of believers so that we can reciprocally care for each other. That will most definitely spur you on to likeness. And then, of course, we have a more intimate, close uh, network of friends. And so there's four means of grace that's at God's disposal that He can use to help us to grow up into Christlikeness. The Bible, prayer, church and close friends. And if you picked any of those things, they are correct because those essential means of grace are for growing us up into maturity. But I want to share another one with you. This is my radical idea. Will you consider for just a moment that the Lord would permit sin into your life to rattle your cage for Jesus? What do you think about the redemptive purposes of sin as opposed to the non-redemptive purposes of sin. We know what the non-redemptive purposes are. You meant it for evil, as Joseph would say. But he would also say God meant it for good. And that's why, that's why I'm talking about the redemptive purposes of sin. That's why I am suggesting I am saying that God will permit sin in our lives, just like he did with Joseph, to bring about a redemptive cause. Now, in Mabel's life, God permitted sin into her life to rattle her cage in the kindest and most caring ways because she was in a minimal security prison. She was stuck, and she never really saw how she got there. Let's go back and look at Mabel's background. Mabel learned as a child that God was righteous and holy. Praise God. And she also learned that she needed to fear Him. Let's praise God there too. Those are important things that we need to know about God, that He is righteous, He is holy, and we should fear Him. She also knew that God was good. She saw Him do many amazing things for her family, and the best of those things was that God regenerated them. Mabel's family was born again, and Mabel was born again too. In fact, she was fond of saying, We serve an awesome God. And you can just hear a song coming out of her. When people talked about her, they knew her as an energetic young Christian who always had positive things to say. You wanted to hang out with Mabel because she was that optimistic person and it was infectious but she had reason to be infectious that way her enthusiasm was legit because God is an awesome God but mabel also was part of a legalistic church that that presented that emphasized presenting the best version of yourself to others externalism was as natural as as breathing for her church, which kind of created some discontinuity. It made it odd that they did not perceive any contradiction in Ephesians 2, 8, 9. You know where Paul said, for by grace are you saved and not by works. But yet there was this externalism, almost like it was a, a work salvation. But it wasn't. They believed. For by grace are you saved, not by works. But then there's that discontinuity. They were very much externalist. Uh, presenting your best self. Uh, They were performers to a degree. It's kind of ironic, like the fish. The fish is the one who never realizes that he lives in water. And the legalist is the one who never realizes that he's in a legalistic culture. And though Mabel loved to talk about how God saved her by grace, not with her works, she felt an odd tension that motivated her not to make any mistakes. And that was the effect of her religious environment, her church culture. Mabel would not say that she was a perfectionist, which is probably accurate. Nobody really is a perfectionist. At best, we are selective perfectionists. We do the things that we know that we can do perfectly if we tend toward perfectionism. And we don't do the things that we know we can fail. And so Mabel, there is no such thing as a perfectionist. So she would not say that she was. But it was hard for her to admit messing up making mistakes, owning her sins. And so Mabel lived in an awkward hybrid world of legalism and and grace. Now, nobody ever said the quiet part aloud. And so they continued to live under self-imposed pressure, presenting themselves in a favorable light all the time. Everybody did it, and so did Mabel. They knew better than to be transparent. And so self-censoring was the common sense path Though it was hard to evaluate how living a dualistic life does deaden one's soul, and so if you're in a context where you can't be your true self, you can't be vulnerable, weak, transparent, honest, open about your life, it will start deadening your soul. You will self-censor yourself and you will live in this weird hybrid, loving God genuinely as Mabel does, but yet you know that the very air that you breathe, that, that you better self-censor because you don't want to be open and honest. Who dares to go first? What if you open up about your struggles and become the focal point of biting gossip? As Mabel grew older, she, seemed, she sensed that her Christian culture was a trap for her. The joy-filled church environment felt more like, as I've said a couple of times, a, a minimum security prison. And she began to internalize these tensions because there was no freedom to talk openly about human failure. You can see how the soul noise inside of her began to amp up. And then added to her struggles, she began to see her family differently from when she was a child. And that's what happens when we grow up, is that we perceive our parents to be a a certain way and then as we have more categories and we could wordsmith more effectively and we are maturing ourselves we begin to see them differently and Mabel was seeing them not as perfect as she thought they were but Mabel had no outlet to discuss these things. And so the soul noise continued unabated. She privately processed the discontinuity in her soul and her family and her church, which led to a slow chill. She was developing a cold heart. She was losing her affection. It's the only way that this could possibly go if she stays on this track, which she is persisting to stay on this track, at least at this time. But God is about to intervene. And because she knew how to perform within a religious culture, nobody discerned how her heart was drifting from her first love. Inwardly, Mabel was a blamer, a critiquer, a hider. She was becoming cynical at what she was seeing. But outwardly, she was the Christian that everyone wanted to emulate. And I would dare say that there are people within your church environment who are silently suffering this way. And that's why... Uh, this case study is applicable to all of us, maybe to us specifically. And I would not want you to look out at your church in a cynical way, but I would ask you, uh, to ask the Spirit of God to give you insight, to illuminate you, to make you perceptive to, that perhaps if someone like Mabel is in your midst, would God give you the, the ability to connect with them to maybe begin that, that drip process of communicating to eventually to where you can have more significant conversations with this person? Mabel did not realize what an immature Christian that she had become. She knew a lot about the Bible, And was one of the favorite children's ministries teachers but she did not have a maturing understanding of how to work through her private battles and forget about confession forget about repentance among her peers the fear of judgment from her legalistic friends began to boil within her now that soul noise has turned into boiling inside all these things work together for evil to harm her soul, as the private churning continued unabated. Mabel was happy and vibrant on the outside, but distant, cynical, and lonely on the inside. Now let's index forward a couple of decades. Today, Mabel is 42 years old. She has been painting by numbers. She's been painting her Christianity by numbers for as long as she can remember. It's rote now. It's like kinesthetic memory. You can type without looking at the keys. You can ride a bike without looking at the pedals. You can paint by numbers with your Christianity, and you don't even have to think about it. It would be fair to sum up her first four decades of Christianity this way. So notice the progression. Number one, she loved God with all of her heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's genuine. That's authentic. That's unassailable. She loved God. Number two, She grew up in a legalistic church environment. Number three, she worked hard at being perfect, though she did not recognize it. This is the slow boil. This is the imperceptible path that we are on where we eventually become so self-deceived, but it happens over such a slow period of time that we don't recognize it. So number one, she loved God. Number two, she was reared in a legalistic church environment. Number three, she worked hard at being perfect but didn't recognize it. Number four, a secret internalized life began to grow inside of her. Number five, Mabel grew a bitter root. When you live a hybrid, a dualistic, a discontinuity life, whatever is on the inside, that hypocrisy, uh, is going to take its revenge out on you. You will uh, internalize a life that you will grow to disdain. It appeared that Mabel's plan was working, again, because it was not really perceptible. She was not bothering anyone. She had 2.5 children. They were living the American dream. It was not the best-case scenario, but it was what she knew. Mabel had figured out that as long as she could manage her low-grade frustration with God, with life, with church, she'd be okay to keep working her plan. How many Christians are mailing it in? They have their Christian representative, the version of themselves that they trot out into the public space, like a public relations coordinator, that carefully edited version of themselves that they do present to the public. Mabel has spent years crafting her public relations coordinator, and nobody perceived, nobody cared, and nobody dared be any wiser. Living a dualistic life means you can live under the radar for a while, but not forever. Not if you are a authentic Christian. And that's why I was saying that with emphasis before. She loved God with all her heart, soul, mind, and strength. She was the real deal. God regenerated her. And because she was God's child, well, God loves her, and he will complete what he started at regeneration. And so eventually, your sin will come to light. It may not be the sin that you're hiding, but live in a hypocritical hypocritical life will somehow manifest somewhere. Paul talked about God's wrath bearing down on those who suppress the truth in, in unrighteousness, meaning they, they press the truth of God out of their lives, or they try to. It's a vain effort, but they try to. Mabel was suppressing the truth. And though she thought she could control her low-grade disappointments, she just did not perceive the self-deception. Mabel lived under a legalistic, guilt-tripping cloud. She was not oblivious to Paul's teaching, to the Romans, about suppressing the truth and how God's wrath will come down on any person that pushes the truth out of their lives. She knew in her heart of hearts, but she had learned how to ignore it. She became a professional. Her public relations coordinator was so good that she knew how to to be on when she needed to be on. And she knew how to hide what she needed to hide. And so she lived in that duality. And as much as Mabel tried to to shrug off the God will get you for that legalistic upbringing, this is where her past uh, really comes and starts haunting her mabel embraced a karma christian mindset meaning what goes around comes around and so this was this guilt tripping nagging that she had in her soul because she was a legalistic christian she believed that god was going to get her for that and so she had a cynical view of god she had a skewed view of the fear of the lord believing that he would get her for being such a hypocrite and that is all kinds of shame and fe- uh, uh, fear and guilt and insecurity working, uh, collaborating in her soul. For Mabel, the walls of her minimal security prison came tumbling down, and it came on a particular day when her son, Biffy, spilled the beans. Biffy came out of the closet. He wrote her a long email sharing what he had done. Biffy had renounced God, embraced the gay lifestyle, and vowed never to return to his Christian roots. Mabel was understandably devastated, and there was nobody whom she could tell. She suppressed her thoughts like she always does. But you can't just suppress those thoughts. It has to leach out on someone. She had to blame somebody for sin. Sin demands that there is blame that has to be leveled on someone. But who would be the culprit in this mess? And so she went through her category. She said, well, her son. She knew that Biffy was responsible for his sin. She had heard preaching about how our sin will find us out, and she was right. This was Biffy's fault. And then she thought, well, her husband, Biff. Biff was never the leader in their home, he was a passive and self absorbed man. He provided for his family and kept them in church. Mabel had resented him for years. It was Biff's fault. And Biffy's too. She was trying to satisfy her her conscience. She was trying to take down the soul noise inside of her, and then she blamed herself for her son's sin. At some level, she was right. She didn't cause him to sin, but yeah, did she contribute? Of course. Mabel knew that that there were things that she could have done differently. The lingering regret in her soul was more active than ever now. And so there is no doubt that when sin comes home to roost, we all have a role to play. And so it is wise and humble for Mabel to assess the entire family's responsibility. Sin does not shy away from collecting allies. For Mabel, there was a significant danger in her thinking that traced back to her legalistic roots, making her assessment of the problem incomplete. Yeah, Biffy's at fault. Biff's at fault. She's at fault. All to different degrees. One is the cause, Biff, that Biffy and the other two were were contributed in some way. But because of her fundamentalist works tradition, Mabel was spiraling into a dark hole of depression. Though it is wise to assess the potential guilt with all the leading players in her family and in her church, there was one more person who needed her attention. Mabel had to come to terms with a sovereign God who permits sin into our lives. Mabel's problem was her myopic understanding of what the word good means in Romans eight twenty eight, when it says that that all things work together for good when the implication is that God is good and we know that God is good, but she had a faulty view of what good is. She had a narrow truncated view of God that protected him from accusation rather than discerning good through the eyes of the Lord who sees and knows all things. Mabel could only perceive God's goodness with a human centered lens. She had concluded that the Lord was not part of bad things which kept her sight lines horizontal when bad things happen. Do you see the problem with her understanding of God? How can an omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient being not have anything to do with the evil that happens to us? Well, I began to share these things with Mabel, and she exclaimed, as you might, might expect, God is good. There is no way that He could be part of my son's sin. Do you sense her angst? Do you hear her practical theology? Someone was to blame, but to say the Lord was part of sin's evil equation, well, that's wicked, according to Mabel. Mabel was angry at her son. She was angry at her husband. She was angry at her Christianity. She was primarily angry at herself for failing her son, to use her words. What she could not see was her anger at God, too. She could not make herself believe that she was frustrated with the Lord, because at some point you have to ask the sovereign question, was God off? Was God not part of this? Was He away, as Elijah said? No, Mabel is a good God-fearing Christian who has always done things the right way, but sadly her theology was failing her. Here is a quick snapshot of how she thought about the Lord in a sequential order. Number one, God is fantastic, kind, perfect, holy, blameless. Number two, God cannot have anything to do with my sin or my family's sin. Number three, because God was not part of the sin, I must find others to blame. Number four, I'm part of the problem. I could have done a better job as a mom. Number five, my husband and my son are, well, they are at fault too. Number six, I am depressed. I feel hopeless. Number seven, I will feel better when my son repents. And then number eight, God is good. She ends right where she began. But everything is horizontal in our sight lines as far as the problem. And God is just distant from the beginning to the end. God is not a part of this. Well, she had a hidden idolatry. Mabel has completely overshot the gospel. Though she is a believer, she does not understand what should be simple on the surface. Mabel's category for sin is so tight that she does not know how to factor the Lord into the equation, which is why she cannot fathom Him being part of her problems. Well, Mabel needs to re-examine the cross of Christ. As a starter, the cross of Christ proclaims many things. For example, God is good. But the cross of Christ also implies that there are times when he uses sin sinlessly to accomplish the good that will only come through those disappointments. You see, the cross of Christ has that that dualistic picture of a great and good and fantastic God that Mabel proclaims, praise God, he saves. But as you stare at the cross of Christ, you realize that, that in order to have the cross of Christ, sin had to happen. Now, you can take this one or two ways. I suggest that you take it both ways. In Acts 2, in Peter's message, he says you put him to death, talking to the people at that day, and that is accurate from a secondary causal perspective. But as you read Isaiah 53, 10, it pleased the Lord to crush him And so God was using sin sinlessly from a primary causal perspective. He used the agency of humankind to bring about a horrific event for a good so that people could be saved. And we see that in the gospel, the cross of Christ. Sometimes living in a sinful world demands the permission of evil for a higher good. Even a cursory reading of the Bible supports God's authority and God's prerogative over sin you can choose virtually any fan favorite from the old testament and see how the disappointment in their lives did not catch guard catch god off guard or did not happen as though it was an alternate plan from god's sovereign oversight and intentionality adam noah abraham joseph Moses, Job, David, they all testified that bad things happen to people and God is always there pushing his plans forward. The good that God was drawing out of Mabel's heart was her hidden idolatry. If you have not picked up on her penchant for fear, deception, perfection, anger, Hypocrisy, rule keeping. Just look at the cluster of sins that had taken root in Mabel's heart. And there's more shame and guilt and anger, discontentment, no shalom of the soul. All of those things had embedded in Mabel's heart as you look at her case study, as you study her life, starting with her early shaping influences. In addition to those, there was rule keeping. Perhaps it would help to review her case study again if you missed those hidden idolatries. Mabel has worked hard to be a good Christian, albeit a self-reliant Christian and a deceptive Christian. She was a trained, self-reliant legalist who built a, an economy of herself In a hybrid form and she was just going to live that way for the rest of her life but god was going to complete what he started and so god imposed himself on her life to extract her from that minimum security prison and he used sin to accomplish his good work in her life specifically what was going on in biffy's life and so now when when Someone comes to you like with a situation like this, you could be very focused on, well, we need to talk to Biffy and we need to help him to work through the complications in his life. But make sure that you have a, a macro view of what's going on here. It could be that, that Sovereign God is multitasking, that he is using this sin in Biffy's life to release Biffy's mom. There could be a, a double restoration going on here. Mabel had multiple opportunities to stand up for Jesus all through her life by speaking out against the subtle hypocrisy of her church. Ironically, the same things that she disdained about them being hypocritical, she was doing, she was a hypocrite too. And so she had a decision to make whether she would continue exchanging the truth of God for a lie, and she made the exchange repeatedly in her life to live that hybrid, dualistic life. She did it so many times that it was second nature to her, kinesthetic memory. Mabel was a genuine Christian who performed for her friends. The Lord chose to bring her sin to light. But not just hers. Her husband's and her child were also making personal, private choices too. God hurled a storm into their family to get everyone's attention. Like what we see in Jonah chapter 1 where it says God hurled a storm into Jonah's life. God will cause bad things to happen to get us to go the other way as opposed to running toward Tarshish. Mabel had been leaning toward Tarshish all of her life, a genuine believer leaning in the wrong direction. He did not make them sin, but he used their sin to make a significant personal and familial realignment. It will be up to them to choose if they will continue their self reliant self-effort life that is comfortable for them, or will they walk the path of the cross. What I just shared with you is how to think about a God. Who permits sin into your life? You can look it up on our website, lifeovercoffee.com. You can read this article. I would encourage you to print it off, mark it up, make notes. One of our supporting members, Cynthia, she, she's mentioned several times now. I like to print them off. I want to hold the hard copy. Praise God, don't ever change. And you can make notes and write it up, and you can have interaction and a small group of friends. And so how to think about a God who permits sin in your life, that's the title. And so you can read, you can watch, you can listen. I want to wrap up by asking a few questions. Number one, when you hear the term, the Lord uses sin sinlessly, what comes to your mind? What comes to your mind? What does that term mean to you? What does it mean biblically? Now, if what it means to you and what it means biblically, if those are two different things, perhaps discussing it with a seasoned Bible student would be fruitful for you. And so the question is, when you hear the term, the Lord uses sin sinlessly, what comes to your mind? Number two, in what ways is your culture or your Christianity shaping you adversely, which inhibits you from speaking up? This is one of the problems that was going on with Mabel for all of her life. She self-censored herself when she felt that nagging, still small voice going on, going off in her soul. She chose to self-censor to where it became a habit, to where she became encased, ensconced, encrusted, and then eventually God said, "Well, I've got to finish what I began, and so I'm going to I'm going to disrupt this situation because." Again, I want to complete what I started in Mabel's life. The question is, in what ways is your culture or your Christianity shaping you adversely, which inhibits you from speaking up? Number three, sometimes you hear a still small voice calling you to take a biblical risk. Now, the modifier is biblical risk. Not just take a risk. I'm going to jump off a cliff, a high cliff with no parachute. You will die. But a biblical risk, and sometimes you hear a still small voice calling you to take a biblical risk. If you continue to refuse, as Mabel did, that voice will disappear. It will get quieter and quieter. Is God here's the question Is God calling you to a better way of living to him for him? Do you hear that still small voice? voice going off inside of your head you don't want to do as mabel did you don't want to self-censor you want to step into it maybe ask others competent people about what you believe god is asking you to do and then as you go through a decision-making season and if this is you believe this is god's will then you want to take that biblical risk don't self-censor number four if god is leading you to take a stand before you make that decision, will you talk to someone about your thoughts? I mean, if there's something that God is impressing upon you right now, will you talk to someone about what you're thinking? Perhaps you're in an environment where nobody is willing to speak this way. Maybe you are the outlier. That is hard to do. It is really hard to do. But if you are that outlier and, and, and you believe that God is pushing you forward, find someone outside of your culture who can help you. Be the fish that gets out of the pond and don't live in the echo chamber where everybody's just going to rubber stamp or say the same thing because they haven't had a novel thought ever and they just do company speak. They stay on brand uh, and they can't think outside of the box. And so if God is moving you and and you're getting the echo chamber responses, perhaps it would be good to find a, a biblical, competent, courageous person that you can share with, and maybe that will be the impetus that you need to take that biblical risk. How do you think about a God who permits sin in your life? Thank you so much, and God bless. Thanks for joining us. Learn more and get access to other resources at lifeovercoffee.com.